What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. I don't think people understand that these men and women are oftentimes working 12-hour shifts see horrific things and have to come home. They're not just first responders, they're, they're human beings. They have lives, you know, they have friends, they have family, they have other things to do. And then they have to go back and do it all again. Hi everybody, I'm Fran Spielman. My guests this week are two very courageous women who have been forced to endure a burden that no one should carry. They've set out to right this wrong so that nobody else has to do the same. Stacy S. Camellia and Julie Trolia are widows of Chicago police officers who took their own lives. Paul S. Camilla and Jeffrey Trolia had 30 years of service between them. They found their situation so hopeless, they both chose suicide. They and their attorney, Patrick Collins, lobbied Alderman Matt O'Shea to do what he did this week, which was to introduce an ordinance that would give surviving spouses of Chicago police officers and other first responders who died by suicide the very same financial benefits afforded to families of officers killed in the line of duty. One year's salary, access to a fund, that could provide up to $40,000 for family health care, education, and other permitted expenses. Ladies, thank you so much for joining us. It's our pleasure. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. I do have to tell you, I know what it's like to lose my husband who died in January of this year, but I cannot imagine what it would be like to be in your shoes. Stacy, why don't you start by telling us about Paul? How did you meet? What was he like? And what was it like being the wife of a Chicago police officer who said goodbye in the morning or night and had no idea whether he would make it home or not? Um, Paul and I met the summer that I graduated college. He had just he was finishing up the police academy. Um, he was he came from a long line of police families. His dad was a police officer. His brothers were police officers. His uncle was a police officer. So I think it's something he always knew he wanted to do. Um, and in the beginning, it was um, a really good job. You know, he really liked it. He made a lot of really good friends. He loved, he loved what he did. Um, I think that slowly started changing as the, um, I just think as the, public opinion of police officers started to change. It just really took a toll on him. 
when did it change? Did you remember the time or what did it? Um, there were several like stories in the media of police officers that had done things that were viewed as um, not okay or breaking the law. And I just think, unfortunately, the media ran with that and showed just those bad apples. And as I said yesterday, he just, he went to work every day thinking he had a target on his back. I remember him telling me like, it's, there's nothing worse than being hated simply for doing your job. Julie, what about you? Tell us about Jeff, how you met, what the pressures of being a police officer's wife were like for you. Uh, Jeff and I met in um, 2006 and he was already on the police department when I um, had met him. Uh, my family comes from a long line of police officers. Uh, his brother is also a police officer. So I uh, was accustomed to um, being a first responders family. Um, but a first responder and a police officer's wife is a definitely a different role. And we have to be strong for them so they can come home and if they want to talk about how their day was and um, almost debrief and let it all out. There are times that he could do that and there were other times where he was trying to protect me as well. So I didn't know the dangers that he was in on a daily basis. Yeah, Stacy, um, why don't you tell us how you steal yourself for the pressures of being the wife of a cop? What do you have to do to prepare yourself for that? So I think it was, um, you know, for the first probably six or seven years, Paul was on midnights. Um, so if I would, and I would, I was a public school teacher. So when I would wake up in the morning, if he was not home, there was just like an instant panic, you know, when I would turn the news on and just make sure that everything was okay. I think that as Julie said, like, I don't think people realize being a police officer's wife, what, what stress that we carry as well. I was always worried that something would happen always. Um, and I knew that obviously I, I did not grow up in a police family, but I knew that that was something that I was going to take on. I understood that. Um, I guess I just didn't realize how, how difficult that would be. And as Julie said, you know, Paul would come home and I think the same thing, he did not want to talk about what he saw. And I think he did not want me to know what he saw. And then when we had children, he certainly did not want them to know what he saw on a daily basis. So he swallowed it all or he internalized yes. it or he had choir practice with the with his fellow officers somewhere, but not with you, not with your kids. Correct. Correct. I mean, he would tell me. I mean, I remember a couple situations that he was in um, that he would tell me about. But for the most part, no, he really tried to keep his job separate. And when he came home, he just became, you know, a husband and a dad and really did not want that to be what we focused on. But did you see it on his face, the strain? Yes, all the time. And what did all you do time. when you did? What did you do when you saw that? Um, I mean, we 
vacationing was sort of his out. We would take a lot of vacations. We would try to get out of the city as much as we could. So he didn't have to see or hear the things that were happening. And like I said, it was harder to escape from it, both for him and for myself. In the last few years, when it just seemed like every single day, all you heard was like a negative police story. Julie, how about you? How did you steal yourself for the pressures of being a police officer's wife? Um, honestly, I felt like I, I just had to take on that role for him. Um, I had to be the rock and the strength at times. And so, and there were other times that he was, but I always made, wanted to make sure that he always got enough sleep. So we have three children and anytime we had our kids, you know, I would get up in the middle of the night with them. I wanted to make sure that he got a full night's rest because if he didn't, his life was, his life and his team's life is on the line. Sleep is a huge part of this. Um, for them. And I think for those who keep it down and a lot of them do because they don't, they don't want to scare us and they don't want to see us, see us worry about them, but it's just something that always will be there. And especially when things happened in the media, if there was something negative about the police or a police officer um, passed in the line of duty, everything comes to the forefront, at least for me. So in, when incidents happen, you start to be like, you're like, okay, how come he hasn't called? He hasn't checked in what's going on. Um, and as those incidents had like passed, it was always, the, it's always there, but it wasn't as strong as when something would happen because we take life for granted and think, Oh, you're just going to work. But the reality is that, these men and women walk out that door and you really don't know if they're ever coming back. Police officers pretty much universally don't like the media. And do they have good reason, Stacy? Do I think they have good reason to? Yeah. Do they like the media? Why do they hate us? And, and <laughs> do they have good reason? Do you think? And what do I... we as the media need to know? <laughs> I absolutely think they have good reason to dislike the media. I think when you, I think we have, the media has glorified criminals and has vilified first responders, police especially. And I think that there were times when we would, you know, I would hear stories or uh, the, the media would report a story and you know, Paul would say to me, like, that is just a snippet of, they're not giving the full picture. So you, you hear something and everyone thinks that this is what the truth is, but there's a lot more to the story. And I think that, I mean, I can't speak for all first responders, but I'm very good friends with many of them. And they all feel that same way, that the media has absolutely vilified them. Julie, same question. Uh, yes, I agree with Stacy. Unfortunately, over especially over the last few years, um, the news really wasn't on in our home. Uh, he really couldn't hear it and listen to it. It's something that he dealt with on a daily basis, and the frustration level, uh, like Stacy said, of this was only a snippet of what actually happened um, at this incident or whatever. 
there were a couple of times that Jeff was in the media for something and um, the hard part for us is our children. And um, when Jeff had passed, this was all released so quickly before my daughter even knew, our daughter even knew what had happened. And sometimes things are so descriptive that I'd never want her to know about. Um, so it's really hard when we're gonna give all of this detailed information about this officer who took his own life and then not talk about how these officers took a major criminal off the street and we almost glorify them. Like Stacy said, they put oh all this hard work in. How did you handle that when your daughter learned things from the media that she hadn't heard first from you? Um, honestly, <clears throat> well, the one, the one time that it happened, we were here and actually the news went on. It was an after an incident that Jeff was on. There was like a clip of what his um, story was and you could see him and I paused the TV right away and he was actually like in the other room. And I said, this is on the news right now. I think we have to come out and have a conversation with Franny. I think you need to talk to her about what she's about to see. And because it was all over the news, everybody had known about it and I didn't want her friends or some other kids saying something to her. Um, and honestly, he handled it so well. He just had said to her, you know, my job, this is my job and this is what I do. And sometimes these bad things happen and I fight every day to protect you and your mom and your sisters and then the rest of the city. Uh, and he asked her if she had any questions and she said no. And she just went about her day. Uh, now, when he committed suicide, did they also learn that details from the media that they hadn't heard first from you? So what um, I understand had happened um, at that time, because our children were not here in the house, uh, she was getting text messages from her friend saying like, we're so sorry, I'm so sorry. And um, Facebook and the Ring doorbell had already said like, there's something happened at this location and people were realizing that it was our house. So someone had to go take her phone and iPad away from her. So she didn't see it actually on the news, but her friends' families had known about it through um, Facebook and social media. Um, and so when I had to go speak to her that night, I tried to say that this um, that this had happened at work, that he was injured at work and there was an accident. And she immediately knew that I wasn't telling the truth and explaining to her about an accident that had occurred in our house with him and that he didn't live literally the hardest thing that had to do. <laughs> she asked, can, you, can we take him? Can we take him to another hospital? Can we take him to another doctor? And I said, that's what I was trying to do all night was to help him. 
and there was nothing they could do. Oh my God. Stacy Alexa James, the CEO of the National Alliance on Mental Illness Chicago, told me this week that hopelessness, not mental illness, is the main indicator of suicide. Why do you believe your husband got to the point of feeling absolutely helpless to the point where suicide became the option? Honestly, I, I really don't know. I think if I had an answer to that, I wouldn't be in this situation. I think if we had um, not only more mental health specialists for these officers to talk to, but if they had, as Julie mentioned, sleep, I don't think people understand that these men and women are oftentimes working 12-hour shifts see horrific things and have to come home and they try to get a little sleep and then they have to do, you know, they're, they're not just first responders. They're, they're human beings. They have lives, you know, they have friends, they have family, they have other things to do. And then they have to go back and do it all again for another 12 hours or when their days off are canceled and they're doing it seven days a week. Um, I think that's where the hopelessness comes in. There was no, for the last few years before Paul died, I don't think he saw it getting any better. In fact, all he heard was all of these officers who were going to retire early and get out of the city and, you know, not do this job anymore. And I think he, um, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I honestly, like I said, if I knew, I mean, Julie and I have talked about this a lot. If there was, if there was any sort of sign, um, you know, obviously I would have done anything I could to help him. I just think they, they have trained themselves to be in a profession where they turn it off and they don't want to burden their loved ones with everything that they're seeing. Julie, what about Jeff? Why do you think he reached that point of no return? Um, I, I agree with Stacy. I, I wish I, I had an answer. My feelings about this is that, I, and I, I'm going to speak for him. He felt like there was no, nobody had their backs. Nobody liked them. They went to work and were um, yes. taunted, Thro um, you know, things thrown at them. Uh, like, and there was no consequences for assaulting a police officer or, uh, you know, they show up on a scene. Well, I, they, I mean, they don't want to be the next example out there if they have to take out and save their own life and take a, somebody else's life. That's a criminal that's done something wrong. It's not, they're the ones that are scrutinized now, not what this person has done. And he, I remember him coming home after the riots had started here. And honestly, I'm going to tell you when the riots started, he was on furlough and we were sitting on our couch watching what was unfolding downtown together. And selfishly, I looked over to him and I said in my head, thank God you are home right now because I don't know what I could do, but I could see the panic, distraught, almost like, oh my gosh, I, I, and his furlough was up in two days. I, this is what I'm walking back into. 
and my fellow teammates and my friends are out here dealing with this. And it was very scary to go to their job. They didn't know what they were going to face that day, that night, and working 12, 16 hours, and then coming home, sleeping, and getting right back up and going back and being beaten down by the people that were out there attacking them. Not only, and not only physically, but verbally. And that doesn't go away. You can't, you can't turn that out. It's so hard to tune all that out. He came home one night and he said, do you know what it's like to be the most hated person in the city? And Paul I said, no, I'm so sorry. I don't, I don't. I'm like, but you're not hated in our neighborhood. You're not hated in our home. You're not hated in our family and friends. You, there's so many people that love you, but I can't imagine how you go to work every day knowing he was refused service at restaurants during the pandemic. It was hard. Like, cause when the riots start, the pandemic was still, um, the food service was still not out there. So they, they used to like go and sit in restaurants and eat and like they would end up um, going to like quick places and one food chain absolutely refused to serve him and a couple of other guys on his team and were arguing about who was going to wait on them and give them their food. So I had to start and I started making him a lunch and dinner every day. I packed a lunch and snacks and whatever he needed for the day. Stacy, what if you were talking to the mayor of Chicago, Mayor Lori Lightfoot and police superintendent David Brown, what would you tell them that they need to do to change this so this doesn't happen and the same feeling doesn't overwhelm other police officers? I mean, police officers are retiring faster than the city can hire their replacements. And there's a reason for that. What do the mayor and the police superintendent need to do and know to change this? Stacy, you first. Support your police officers. Go on the media and say that you support your police officers. Don't tell that, you know, it's when there's, when there's a situation that happens, we, you know, our, our leadership will get on and talk about all the different ways that things could have been different, that this child or this criminal should not have been shot or what the police could have done. How about you get up there and say, thank you to these officers for doing their job, for protecting this city. And if you, if our current leadership thinks that first responders feel like they are supported, they are very, very wrong because they do not feel supported and they are not supported. And if you, if you want to, if you want to talk about helping them and give, you know, giving them more mental health support and understanding that it's such a difficult job, stop canceling their days off when something happens. And and, and you think that you're going to, are you actually surprised that they're retiring in in higher numbers and that they can hire? Who would want to take this job right now? Who would, what, what mother would encourage her son or daughter to go on a job where not only is your life at risk, but you are vilified in the media. You are hated. I, mean, I remember Paul stopped wearing, he would put a jersey on over, he wouldn't even drive to work and be seen in his car with his uniform on going to work because he was scared that somebody would retaliate against him in the car. This is what these men and women face every single day. And we have a leader of our city who somehow 
I'm not sure if she doesn't understand that. I'm not sure if she thinks that it'll just get better, but that, that needs to change. You need to show your support for them. And yes, are there some bad apples in every profession? Absolutely. But 99% of them are really good people and took this job to protect and serve the city. Julie, what about you? Is it the canceled days off? Is it the 12 hour days? Is it the policies that have tied the hands of police and tells them when they can chase and when they can't and when they can do this and when they can do that? What are, what are your thoughts about what you would say to the mayor, to the superintendent about how to change this? Yes, um, I've actually sat down with the superintendent shortly after this happened to have a discussion with him to um, give some suggestions on what can be better for these men and women. And my, one of my big pushes was the days, the canceling of the days off. And I, my strong point to that was these men and women need more than one or two days to fully rest and have somewhat of a normal life with their family and friends. And that, so they can de-escalate and debrief and get prepared to go back into the battle of what they have to do every day. The policies are also a major problem. Uh, there's, you know, there's no more, the foot pursuits and the- um, Vehicle chasings. The, the vehicle yeah. chasings, yes, thank you. Um, they will, if people do something wrong, well, they know that the police can't chase after them anymore and they're just gonna keep going. There's no, to me, there's no consequences for, the breaking the law in this city anymore. And I don't think that it just starts with the mayor. I, that goes towards the state's attorney's office, in my opinion, because these criminals are not being prosecuted to what they have done. Both of you were left suddenly to raise your children alone without the financial support that the city, your husbands served, should have given you. Stacy, how have you managed? Um, it's, it's been really difficult. I mean, the city cut us off from insurance after 90 days. Um, Paul was the primary breadwinner. He also carried the insurance. So on top of dealing with grief and trauma and being shocked to have to figure out how to make sure my children are insured, how to make sure I can pay my mortgage, how to make sure I can pay for their schooling. Um, these are things that we should not have to deal with in those first few, in those actually those first few days. There should be some sort of, um, I, I, was, I was absolutely shocked when I found out that when I received the letter two weeks after Paul died, that I had two and a half months to figure out how my kids were going to get insurance. So how did you do it? I mean, how many jobs have you held? I mean, how do, how do you do that? I mean, you, I do what I have to do. You know, I work, I pay for private insurance. It's not something that I had financially planned for, but I left with no other choice. I have three small kids who need to make, need to have medical insurance. I need to what have a, medical insurance. What about childcare while you're working? <laughs> I mean, I've relied on the support of family and friends because, you know, I, I was just telling somebody, we are not single parents. We are solo parents. There is nobody to help us. There is nobody to 
And I don't want my children, my children have been through enough. I need them. I tried to keep their life as stable as possible. I tried to keep things similar. I was prior to that. I worked very part-time and I wanted to be around for them. I wanted them to see me at their sporting events and carpooling their friends to activities because I didn't, they already lost one parent and I didn't want them to think that their other parent was not around. Julie, how about you? How have you managed financially? Uh, Jeff, uh, as well, was the uh, primary breadwinner of our family. And um, it was, it's almost like a culture shock. You're you're like, wait, what, what's happening now? During that time that we had to figure out all of these financial and medical um, scenarios, your word, I mean, Stacy, I don't know if you can agree, but you're, we were, I was in a fog and I, I'm a year and a month out of this and I feel like I'm still in a fog and I, I have to learn all about insurance and what's going to be what's best for our kids and how am I going to get them on another insurance and where are we going to go? Um, is this going to be enough money to cover our mortgage that month? You know, there's bills. I, we have an older daughter who's going to be going to high school in two years. Um, you know, you always worry about those things as a couple and, you know, they, we know that they always work out, but not only did we lose him, but we lost our, our whole world just was lost and has changed completely. And it's just so hard to fathom. There should have been like an easier grace period after someone in our positions or anyone losing a spouse or a husband and any position shouldn't have to make these major decisions immediately after the death of someone. There should be a grace period. Stacy, we hear about the city increasing mental health counseling, but they still are far short of what they're supposed to be doing by the federal consent decree. Did either of your husbands seek the help or is there still this incredible stigma among police officers who seek help? Um, he did. He did seek help um, a few months before he passed away. I don't necessarily know if it's a a stigma amongst. I mean, I yeah, actually, I I do think there is a stigma amongst police officers with that. However, I think it's also, you know, you have to remember that Paul and Jeff were on this job for a really long time, and I think all they knew was to battle up, and they're they were both such strong men and such good husbands and fathers that everything they did was to protect their family. So I think Paul never wanted me to worry or think that he wasn't okay because he, as much as I would do things to try to let him know that he could talk about things or that, you know, I could, I could take on more if he needed more of a break. That just was not his personality. That is not how he he liked being, um, I think he liked knowing that he was the protector of all of us. And Julie, did your husband seek help or no? No, he did not. Um, and I honest, actually didn't even realize that EAP um, existed um, there for me and, and our family and friends, there were zero 
warning signs that this would ever happen. Uh, my husband was a hundred percent against suicide and was always saddened to hear of another officer or anyone who chose to do this. And so it really came as a complete and utter shock mm -hmm. to us. And um, I think for myself, um, as a police officer's wife and any first responder in this city, I think it's when we need to know, the spouses need to know that EAP is out there and they're, they, they are there to help. And it, it's hard. They have, there's that stigma. If I go for help uh, and I say something and I do this, I can lose my job. I, mm -hmm. you know, if I um, say that I'm not feeling well and I, and I need some time off to, you know, rest, like, you know, again, they are scrutinized then and all they have to, there's this whole process that they have to go through. And sometimes, honestly, it's not easy. So I think they're all, most of them are um, a little afraid to go and seek that help. And I, are I either of you getting, you, Jeff, are sorry. either of you getting the help you need to deal with your guilt, your feelings, your emotions now and your family? Yes, um, I use EAP um, for myself and our daughter, and then our youngest children um, have a wonderful, wonderful woman who um, has taken, it, it specializes in this as well. Unfortunately, the city did not have anything for our youngest children at this time. And I think that's something else that needs to change is that there has, you have to be able to service any any age of a child of a police officer, a fireman, or a paramedic in the city. Um, so we have, we use our, um, I had to find somebody through our own insurance and, and go that way with the younger kids. That's wrong. That's wrong. Stacy, how about you? I, um, my older son saw a counselor at EAP the first few weeks after Paul died. Um, but then same with Julie, it's, I didn't think it was the best fit for my twins who at the time were seven. Um, so I also seek private counseling for them through our insurance. Oh, wow. That, that's got to change too. Ladies, I wish we had more time. I thank you so much for sharing your stories as painful as they are. I hope maybe this does some good so that your quest for yourselves and for people in your similar situation dating back five years uh, is successful. And I'm sure it will be because you already have unanimous support from the city council and from the mayor's office. I wish you both the best. I wish you both the strength that you need to get through these tragedies that you've endured. And we will see you all next week. Thank you.